Hey, everybody. Today's episode is a bit different from our first couple podcasts because, unfortunately, Molly is not in this one. I'm sorry I missed you. I know I'm disappointing all of her superfans, rightfully, but rest assured, she'll be back in the next episode. This current episode was recorded at an earlier time than the others, so it's just a discussion between me and poet Eddie Cabbage. Eddie Cabbage is a stellar writer based here in Asheville. His marquee gig is what he calls poetry on demand. What this means is that Eddie sets up in bars, restaurants, festivals, and so forth, and anyone could just walk up to him and offer a prompt, a word or a phrase, and write on demand, he writes a poem for that person. But it's not just novelty. These are great poems. When I was developing The Present Dimension, that is the overarching brand out of which this podcast is born, I ran into Eddie and gave him the prompt of, quote-unquote, The Present Dimension. Those three words, with no other details. And from just that, he was able to capture a very deep portrait of the essence I've been trying to capture with this brand. Eddie's genuinely a special poet. After living a, quote-unquote, normal life, Eddie kind of gave it all up in 2013, at the age of 30, and started living solely as a writer. He's done his 10,000 hours and now is quite literally a professional poet. He's had a storied decade traveling around the country multiple times over, touring with bands, living out of vans and trains, and walking that tightrope between security and freedom. Finally, since this was done on my front porch, please forgive the intermittent sound of passing cars. Hopefully it adds a little lively flavor for you. I am here with the great Eddie Cabbage sitting here on my front porch in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. Eddie, thank you for being here. Welcome, myself. Thank you. In Poetry on Demand for folks at home, what Eddie's doing is people come up to him and they give him three words and he just looks at them and has to create a poem that resonates with that person by not knowing anything about them other than how you look. So, Eddie, over the years, have you really attuned your sensory capacities to kind of look at somebody and in some kind of weird way judge them or categorize them or create in your head who they may be so you can offer them references in a style that will resonate with them? Oh, I think people do it all the time everywhere. You know, you interact with people, you look at them, you people watch, and in your mind you're formulating their life. What is this person like? What do they do? You know, and it's all over what kind of shoes they have. It's mentalism and the fact that it's all just how we are, how we interact with people, and I just pick up on that stuff. You know, so as a people watcher and mentalist or artist in public, I'm gauging everybody. So when they walk up, I already have a pretty good idea. So just give me a subject and I go. And so your brain must be a depository of many references to offer this person because you're plucking from different spaces all the time. Let's say the 45-year-old house mom from the suburbs of Ohio is going to be potentially a different vibe than some sort of dope hip-hop dude out of Brooklyn that walks up to you, right? Oh, yeah. And more you travel, you pick up on other people and you learn other cultures. And it's the same thing as I'm doing. I'm just I'm writing poems for somebody. I'm hearing their story. They write them the poem. They tell me their story and I just put them in my mental warehouse so when somebody wants a subject about climbing mountains in Utah 
I'm like, man, I met that guy last year that climbed mountains in Utah, or I was out in the Grand Mesa, and I put the little Polaroid of my memories or, or conversations into a poem for that person. And so do you feel that your mind is holding on to all of these snippets through life? Oh, and yeah, you yeah. Create it's, a... it's clutter. Yeah, it, you feel it's clutter. Oh, always. How do you find, or where do you find clarity and space? Is it within the moment as you're doing poetry, or is it outside of poetry? Clarity. Um, I just, I just like to write when somebody, after I've written something and I hand it to the person or I read it to them and it's more than just a gimmick, I write something and it makes them emotional. You know, they start crying or I'll give you an example. When somebody sends me a picture or something, I've got framed on their wall and that gives me clarity. This is what I'm doing this for. Another example, what gives me clarity for why I'm a writer or why I'm doing this is it's not the money. That's for fucking sure. You know, so, you know, um, it's not the fame or money or, or whatever. I don't know if that have any of that stuff or will, but it's things like I went to work to festival in black mountain and I had my typewriter and I wrote poems and the kid got a poem. And then I worked the next Lee festival. And this kid came to Lee festival with a typewriter and said he got a typewriter after he saw me and his parents said, hey, he's been typing on that thing. And, and I was like, that's it, clarity right there. And you make a difference in a kid and just getting a typewriter at that age and getting inspired by words and writing. And you never know what that kid's going to do yeah. either. Yeah. You don't know yeah. where the ripple ends. Yeah, and he might have tossed that in the garbage, but there's a possibility of so much more of these branches of the multiverse. And, you know, when you talk about 20-some thousand poems, there's enough of them out there now that have come back to me and those branches are far reaching now. And the words then live on beyond you. They're an entity outside of you which makes it feel so alive. Oh, it reminds me of Steve Jobs would say you poke the world and something comes out the other end. And yeah, it's yeah. like when you create something and float it out into the world, sometimes it actually changes the world even in just a tiny little well, bit. Well, and I'm out there, I'm not, you know, it's not even a portrait they're coming in and getting off the wall and they put their house and that makes me think this every day. It's they were floating a river and I was a boulder in that river that day. And they stopped and interacted with that boulder, took a poem and they kept going, but their flow was interrupted for a moment. You meet and engage with a ton of real life folks, right? There's oh, yeah. few people that have more person to person, face to face interaction with the different flavors and styles of America than someone like you and you're kind of vibing with somebody else's style for those five minutes. So you're yeah, yeah. really kind of moving through your life, resonating with all these different shades and hues of the American population. What does that give you? What does that offer you during these weird, wild times right now where there's all this division towards each other? Or at least it seems to be that way digitally. Yeah. Poetry on demand. It's not first-person poetry, so I'm writing it for them. I've traveled all over the Rust Belt, every color state, and the subjects aren't different. You know, they're not like somebody that's a far right is much different than somebody that's far left. It's a lot of love and family and dogs. Somebody, here's my cat, and my anniversary's coming up. Granny just died, or somebody's getting married, or the, my football team. And we have, you know, the internet, and yet the media antagonize different sides because it sells, and that gets people's attention. And I don't know the, the cures to politics, but we are more alike than we are different. Over the years, I've had very high-end jobs of headhunting and sales and a little bit of everything. I've done a lot of things in my life. But it was slowly diminishing the responsibility of my writing. 
and things. And I, I got my first typewriter. I just started writing again every day. I would wake up and I would write a one-page story every single day. And then I would have friends over and I would uh, ask them, hey, give me a subject, I'll write you something. And that's how it started. And I went, within a couple months of getting that first typewriter, I just you know left my job, took my typewriter, built a little harness out of a serving tray and some guitar straps. So it was like a cigarette girl, old timey. And I walked around a festival with the typewriter and it was no price or anything. It was just like, give me a subject and I'll type you something. Just poetry on a man. And the next weekend, I did a pub crawl around the craft beer scene, which became my full-time thing. I just never looked for a day job again. Those early poems you're doing, how do you feel about those very first poetry on demand? The first ones, yeah, they're just totally different. So I can see my evolution as I've done it and my style of writing. So after eight years now, it's not some form of writing that's I learned. It's my form of writing. So I can tell without my name on it if I wrote something. Yeah. Which I think is a really difficult thing for an artist or a writer to arrive at. It takes a lot of hours to find your unique voice and style. Maybe your early styles, perchance, were just a conglomeration of other references and oh, things yeah, yeah. you'd read. The right? stress in the moment of, you gave me a subject, oh my God, freak out, to years later, that same subject. And it's not, oh, how am I going to do this? Where do I want to take this? The way I type on the typewriter, I make it word arty and what I do on social media as for what I write, the style I write and the look of what I write, it's totally different than the on-demand poems, which is totally different than my travel prose writing as I travel and do different things. So at all times, I have different styles of my own writing to dive into like different books to read. So I'm like kind of burned out and doing on-demand. I did that all day today. Well, I'm going to go get me some whiskey. I'm going to write my own style and maybe it'll be love poems for Instagram one-liners, you know? Yeah, I see you over at The Whale doing poetry on-demand and it seems like you're working hard in the daily grind doing on-demand poetry for folks all over. Boom, 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 boom. But then you go home and the poetry's still just flowing out of you and you continue at home to do poetry. You're one of those guys who just needs to write. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I have to write. That's it. So yeah. before I had a typewriter, I was sitting at the bar with my notebook and writing all day. And in those days, I was so excited. I'd put poems on my WordPress or little stories and just get one person to, to see it even. Okay. And this was before Instagram and Facebook. This is like 2009, 8. There wasn't a lot of poetry on the internet other than its little corners. Have you been dabbling in poetry and or writing since you were young? People say, how do you be a writer? I know it's reading. So I was a kid, I loved to read and I would write little adventure stories in my mind and put them on paper. So who are some of the authors you most resonate with either now or when you were younger? Oh, always number one that got me into poetry, Shel Silverstein. Little short poems, little story poems. That's probably the closest that my writing is to anybody. It's Shel Silverstein. I love that answer because I've so been vibing with him because he was doing something interesting, unique, and magical. And his poem, Masks, do you know that one, has always lived deep in me. For some reason, I read it when I was young, and I always remember it. It was, he had blue skin, and so did she. She kept it hid, and so did he. They searched for blue their whole life through and passed right by, but never knew. Schultz were seen top of the list. But when I started getting older, it was Walt Whitman huge. Walt Whitman, Robert Frost, American authors I loved. And then in the college, I got into Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, Tennyson, and 
Yates, and I spent years, I would go to the bar, diving into the life of writers, what they wrote, and it just started filling my brain. So I don't read too many new contemporary writers anymore because I don't want to convolute with what I'm writing with what a contemporary writer is writing. Because I can get inspired by Walt Whitman, and I can't write like Walt Whitman because I was, you know, 150 years ago. But I can write like myself. Yeah. Dead Poet Society. That's what I like, the dead poets. And there's something that's potent about something that lasts. Time is a filter, and the things that still work decades, even centuries later, to me it means there's something true in it. That eternal conversation being spoken through the past, uh, into the present. So you like go back in time, and people like Aristotle and Plato were, okay, these people have been hunting, gathering, they're surviving, but it's those philosophers that were putting the questions out there of, what more is there? Once dinner is handled, what's after dinner? What's the possibility of us and the meaning of life beyond fucking and hunting? For me, those are such exciting questions that are fun to play around with. And I think modern society needs to reclaim philosophy and asking those questions in a big, fun, creative way, which is somewhat what the present dimension is, as opposed to treating philosophy and the big questions as some sort of stale academic affair, like life opens up when you start to look and explore what the big questions are. Yeah, yeah. And I think you eventually find, no matter what angle you come at it from, whether it's Aristotle or Chekhov or you, at sometimes I think everybody mutually hits this space of clarity. And that space of clarity, whatever you want to call it, that kind of divine frequency at its most transcendent, at its most transcendent, that is a frequency shared across time that everybody is connecting to. That's what I somewhat call the present dimension. It's this space that transcends time. And I think writing is this kind of eternal conversation. Yeah. And each writer that puts something out, floats something out into the universe like you do, is at least in a small way part of that eternal conversation. What words will last over time, we don't know. But all we can do is put something out there for the world to respond to. And I, I don't think everybody needs to be a philosopher. And there needs to be people that are hunting and gathering. But you need the artists and you need the philosophers challenging us to explore something beyond what we're predestined to be. Where we come from, where we're going to go. And I think it's a great opportunity when people come up to me and then I get to be that, you know, boulder in the river. So they don't have to be a philosopher or a poet. They can come up and talk to me, give me a subject. We're going to create this thing together. And here's some art that we created together. And then they can never have to ever write a poem in their life or never heard a poem in life, but they helped create one in some way. And they take it with them right then. And what else is created in this world that's in the moment besides a receipt at Burger King? But what else do you ever run into something that you can say, I want a poem about spaceships and a guy will type it up on a typewriter right there within a couple of minutes, read it, sign it, and hand it to you, and it's yours. And have a good day. It's a beautiful thing to think about it as a collaboration with the person. It's an energetic yeah. exchange. It wouldn't have ever. I would not. I wouldn't have written a spaceship poem today if I went for that person. Maybe yeah. most likely. And I, I'm lucky that I get to challenge myself, interact with people, and try to be honest with what I'm writing about them, and really in the moment, like let's create something right here, and getting reimbursed for it. Yeah, it's win-win at the yeah, at yeah. its best. I don't want to. I want to write the poems, man. I want to write. I want to interact. I want to. I want to write a poem that surprises me, 
Ooh, I didn't know I had that poem in me. I didn't know I had those words. That's a cool feeling, isn't it, when something new comes through you? Oh, thrilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I feel evil, you know, like Dexter. Like, ooh, I got to shill up. My, like, I'll read poems and I'll get shivers. When I'm reading a poem sometimes and I get the goosebumps, I'm like, ooh, I had a nerve in my cell somewhere. It was, you know, I got them. You know, I got you like when they're like smiling, laughing, or I'm just typing that poem, like, like the last thing, and I'm like, man, I fucking got him with this one. Watch this shit. <laughs> I don't care if they like it or not. When I surprise myself, I'm like, that was a good fucking poem. Yeah. You know? So it's those moments of pure writing that lets you kind of release yourself from the world. I took Amtrak trains all over the country. 140-some hours by train, and then also cross-country by van. Kind of a Kerouac-on-the-road style thing. Yeah, you learn stuff on the road. Um, you learn to depend on yourself. So that's you, no cell phone, no money. My uh, cross-country trips, you know, done it more than several times now, but I left for California with, I think, 80 bucks in my pocket and no cell phone, you know, no car. I'm riding with somebody out there and just see what would happen. And my stories and my travel writing is totally different than anything else I write. It's a story written about what do I have on hand. I got a half pack of cigarettes, dollar ninety seven on the bank account. I've got half a tank of gas or no gas. And what do I need to get from here to there? And it's empowering once you know what you can survive. You know, it's like being a survivalist. I mean, there's people that can know they can go out in the fucking woods and they can hunt, gather, and sustain. And I think that's the adventure of giving up the security and, and going out. Yeah. And I think that's the torture of my life was when I was working those jobs and I wanted to travel. I dreamed of doing that eight, the Appalachian Trail. I dreamed of going out west. But I never did it. And I didn't. Uh, it was scary thought to me go by myself all the way across country go to Yosemite, scary. And then uh, now to just I've done it. it gives me courage to know I can do a lot of other things. It sounds like during this era was it more stress that you were feeling, or was there more freedom because you were really flying by the day? At first, it's like the adventure. Then you're on the adventure, and it's like it's stress. It's here's what I have on me. How long can I stay out there before I need home, before I need to, to come back? And it's broken me. I think like sailors, old sailors, and I love sea shanties of exploring until you had enough energy to make it back home. It sounds like there's such a trade-off. There's a freedom to life to live the way you do, but there's a level of risk and insecurity that must be grappled with, and it just becomes a way of life. As opposed to a lot of us, I think, where... We demand some higher level of security. And then we search for freedom within those confines. Yeah, and we're yeah. always trading off between kind of freedom and security. That's probably too reductive. And, you know, but... and it's minimalism for me, traveling with the band and then traveling myself to really get down to what can I fit in a fucking bag on my back even to just travel and just keep going. I like living by what I only need, like a van life or my truck. I don't need the security as much. You know, I like the freedom. It's that trade-off. I live in a different Peter Pan world. What do you mean by that? I mean, it's just like, I don't live in the reality of the world, you know? You know, it'd been better if I was doing this at 22 years old, but I couldn't do what I'm doing now back then. I didn't know shit about anything. I spent too many corporate days sitting in a cubicle. It was plotting and scheming to have a life of, if I want to do it, I can do it, and I'm the only one to blame if I'm not doing it. So I can pick up today and go as far as the gas will take me, stop there with my typewriter, 
sell some poems, fill the tank back up and go and keep going if I want. But I'm in charge of that. My little island of Peter Pan, but I'm also a businessman. So I try to engage both. And when I'm out doing poetry on a man, it's a business to me. So I try to mix the two worlds between growing old and being immortal. I don't know. There is something, there's something magical about Neverland, though. Oh, it, it is, you know, and I, <clears throat> there's romanticism to traveling, you know, and there's a romanticism to being a poet. And like me, I have my own cabin, I have my truck, and these are my things. But um, I'm a couple degrees above homeless at any time. You know, I don't have any backup. I say that's, I'm like the working poor. I'm like artist working poor. I'm just out there typing poems. See what happens, man. It's like a man on island tossing bottles with poems in them, man. So there's no guarantees ever. There's no guarantee I'm going to make money or do well. And that's the risk I take every day of my life for eight years now is there's no guarantees. What were you doing occupationally in 2013 when you decided to go out and start doing poetry on demand instead? Uh, my last day job, I was uh, working as uh, an Apple tech. At the Apple store? Yeah. A genius. Yeah. Technician. That must seem now like a lifetime ago. Do you miss that era at all? Uh, no, I don't. I miss the reliability of a paycheck. That's nice. But uh, like today, I'll go set up at the bar and I'll interact with people there and customers and it's just a different work environment, but I'm not required to be there or no one's the boss of me. I uh, go and I set up and I'm the boss and I make money and you know, and, and that's it. You know, I'm, today, like example, I got my Apple Care or my iPad is trying to charge me that's like two ninety nine plus tax and then my debit card's like uh, rejected that so I have like a dollar ninety two on my Venmo and that's the way I live. It's like today I'll go out, make money, get gas in my truck and then I'll kinda of restart the weekend. And that's kinda of how I live poem to poem. So to get totally candid, you have one dollar to your name right now? Look at the dollar and change. Oh yeah. And my truck's not empty. So but that won't be the story through the night or through the weekend. Peter Pan shit, you know. You mentioned you considered yourself a Taoist. And as I, in the broadest sense, would consider my leanings Taoist. And there is something I'm thinking about a lot these days about the center of the Tao. You know, that space where it's not good or bad, this or that. But where we sit serene in the center of not knowing yeah. and it's a state of realizing how little we know and so much of this divisiveness these days I believe is we're so sure of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. everybody's so sure I and know they... I know you'll run around I know I know you don't know shit you know and that's what I think travel does to you it teaches you that you don't know shit that we're raised in these little corners and I think that's the greatest part about humanity is if you travel and you seek knowledge you'll always amaze yourself with how much you don't know and you didn't know till that moment and America has got different cultures but we're shut off from the rest of the world you know so in Europe you can get those extremely diverse cultures rapidly for Americans I think Americans need more travel I'm not talking about going on TV and see a movie about it you have to get out there in the nitty-gritty of experiencing someone else's culture to appreciate your own, but also to realize that you don't have the answers. You don't know. What is right for you is not right for somebody else. And the best you can try to do is try to take care of yourself. Don't dictate how somebody else take care of themselves. You know, don't dictate how a woman does her body because you don't know shit. Culture is so 
bifurcated now in all these branches that our cultural touchstones don't really have resonance far and wide. You know, we used to have American Idol and the Super Bowl and everybody watched three channels and so forth. And so our vocabulary was all kind of the same. We knew the same celebrities, the same movies. Everybody knew what Casablanca was, blah, blah, blah. Now with TikTok and Instagram, we have this kind of infinite explosion of references and celebrities, literally like L-list celebrities now. Somebody's big on TikTok. And it's impossible for us to have a kind of united vocabulary. There's very few people. Yes, we still know the Beyonce's and maybe We're the Tom Cruise's. We're more than ever in history, I would say. So how do you then think about that as a poet, that as you're offering somebody something, or not even as a poet, in any conversation we are in, we have certain references that are available to us to help us make an idea clearer or more poetic or more interesting, and yet we're always in life appraising the person in front of us as to will they get this reference? Like, I'm not going to make a reference to you about the drummer of AFI and obscure punk band from the mid-2000s as opposed to something that you've heard of. If I was to talk about Eric Clapton, I can trust, oh, you understand who Eric Clapton is. And more and more, I think, just in our general communication, we're losing common reference points. As an example, here's a story. I was down at the bar. A girl works there. I said, give me a subject and I'll write you a poem. Gives me the subject of rain. So... I wrote a poem about rain, and I did a reference in there with Forrest Gump about all types of rain. Uh, there was sideways rain and rain that came from underneath. See, every kind of rain. Rain day is. Rain that flew in sideways. And sometimes rain even seemed to come straight up. And there's a reference in the poem about Forrest Gump, but it didn't matter if you'd seen Forrest Gump for the poem to work. Kind of find out she had never seen Forrest Gump. See, that kind of rocks me. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about, like, national identity, and maybe we don't need things like we all have seen you know, Forrest Gump. But, but that's my movie for the masses. Forrest Gump is one of those movies. And it was 1994, that movie. But it's still a universal movie. And she didn't get it. I was blown away for it. I mean, we're slightly different ages, but is that just how all people feel as they get older? They're in shock that the younger generation can't sink sink into what they so thoroughly felt was part of them. People love Tom Hanks. That's what it is. You know, that makes me think of Forrest Gump for a moment in terms of, yeah, it's Tom Hanks. And there's a lot that's interesting about the movie. But from a thematic perspective, what is so special about it is I think it's that monologue at the end where he's crying to Jenny's grave. And he says, I may be paraphrasing this but are we making our own choices or are we just floating on a breeze like i don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental like on a breeze yeah it's I more think it's a of both i think it's a little bit of both yeah, yeah. maybe both is happening at the same time and you look at the movie and it's like well is life happening to this man this strange journey or is he doing it himself. And that's a whole, bringing it back to Taoism, am I a man dreaming he's a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming I'm a man? And and what's been on my mind lately is just meeting the universe halfway. Like, you know, I can't sit at home and complain about it or I can go try to make something happen and, and the universe will meet you halfway on everything. When the good things have happened to me, or they, they constantly happen. Even when I don't realize something's been really good for me happening, it is, and it's me attempting to meet the universe. Immediately after our conversation, Eddie went up the street and did poetry at an outdoor bar we both frequent. He texted me that evening, quote, from a buck 97 to a hundred dollars. No guarantees. Go check out Eddie's work on Instagram at Poetry On Demand or his personal writings, which are actually my favorite, at Eddie Cabbage. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. <laughs>